Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the award-winning and radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Andrew Mullally and Dr. Chris Stroud. This is the show where we and our guests will always discuss relevant health-related topics and always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guests will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. For the first time on Dr. Doctor, our guest will be Dr. Angela Ballman, a pharmacist who will join us today to discuss the legal challenges related to contraception and medical abortion, as well as the ethical challenges for a Catholic pharmacist in America today. Yeah, you wouldn't necessarily think you would have something special about your job because you were a Catholic pharmacist. But I think we're going to learn differently today. Yeah, I, I feel like the pharmacists sometimes they don't get the attention that the nurses get, the doctors <laughs> get. But honestly, that's where the rubber meets the road, especially when it comes to prescriptive medications. So, Chris, you're an OB. Tell us about how things have changed since Roe v. Wade went down last year. I mean, it's a relevant, relevant question, but I think the reality is I would have to argue they haven't changed at all. But then that's probably coming from a position of my bias, obviously. But, you know, healthcare is the same today, uh, just as broken, just as <laughs> just as not as it was when Roe v. Wade was the law of the land. Now, is abortion as readily available today as it was uh, before the Supreme Court decision? No, it's clearly not. Uh, not in our state of Indiana, not in about half the states in the country, right? Uh, but of course, I would argue that hasn't changed healthcare at all because I would have come at it from a position that abortion is not healthcare. Mm. There are plenty of, uh, of good people in, in the world, some of which may be our listeners, that would disagree with that. Um, but I would argue, and I think you and I could put forth a pretty reasonable argument that abortion's not healthcare. That is to say, it is never essential. You know, one of the big changes, and we've talked about it on our show, is right after the passage, there were some pretty horrific misunderstandings. Yeah. Yeah, we heard those stories about women and maybe with an ectopic pregnancy in an emergency room and lawyers involved in the ER, never good. Sorry to our, yeah. our legal <laughs> colleagues. Um, but I think those were misunderstandings and learning kind of on the fly. Uh, but that was not part of the law. That was a mis misunderstanding about the law. So uh, again, I think it hasn't changed since uh, the changing of Roe v. Wade. What do you, what do you think? I, I feel like there's a, a lot of unresolved things or, or maybe, you know, just waiting what's outside the door. Um, yeah, probably our listeners see a lot of things about uh, the changes in prescriptions. And that's one of the things hopefully um, our guests can enlighten us on. But, you know, with the abortion pill in particular, it used to be something that the abortionist had to hand you. Right. And now, uh, kind of by fiat, the federal government has waived that mm -hmm. so you can get it at the pharmacy. That, I, I think, is going to probably change things. And then on top of that, now the FDA is looking at trying to make birth control pills over the counter, which yeah. I don't know. What do you think about that just from the medical side of things? You know, it's a debate that's been going on probably since they were invented in the 60s, you know. And But that idea of what should require a physician's prescription and what should not, right. that's been raging long before you and I. You're right. Uh, you know, from an OB historical standpoint, you know, folic acid, the thing that makes a prenatal vitamin, a prenatal vitamin. When I started medical school way back near the beginning of time, um, you had to have a prescription to get folic acid. Really? And now, of course, it's available anywhere and, and everywhere. But, you know, the idea was it could mask an anemia. Okay, and so wow. if, you, if you took that, you might fool your physician into thinking your anemia was okay based on what it did to the blood test. Oh, wow. Um, but then I guess through time, you know, it was a weighing the risk versus the benefits, and, and it was okay. But interestingly, we, we require a prescription for, I mean, we could think of a million things, right? Yeah. Antibiotics. Oh, yeah. Um, blood pressure medicines, you know, acne treatments, all of the things that we think are relatively benign, Yeah. we require a prescription for. And yet, maybe not a prescription for something that is, as I think we'll learn listening to our guests, pretty, pretty, pretty serious. Yeah. You know, if you could take a medication that would raise your chance of breast cancer tenfold while you're taking it, you would think that's as serious as an antibiotic. Right. At least I would. Well, and and also there's the assumption that it's going to work as prescribed. Yeah. You know, and we we obviously know about the the lack of success with some of the birth control, especially this is a progestin-only birth control pill. So 
even like BMI and stuff come into calculus about, is it actually going to do what people think it's supposed to do? In the way they think it's going to do. Yes, absolutely. You yeah. Progestin-only pill, that's a topic in its own. <laughs> we could do a show probably just on that and how it works and the controversy around it. Uh, but it can be it can be very confusing. Well, and, you know, here in our state of Indiana where we're recording, they've made a law this year, um, it hasn't taken effect yet, where the pharmacist will be able to prescribe uh, contraceptives. And so it's kind of a, a, you know, I was looking at some of the ACOG stuff before the show, and ACOG looks at that as a, a stepping stone to getting it over the counter. Mm. And um, Which I believe it's fair to say ACOG sees as a positive thing. Right, which is kind of odd to me. I mean, just from <laughs> a, a market perspective, like, isn't birth control like half the reason you go to an OB-GYN? I mean, if you're not having babies, which, yeah. by the way, if you're having more babies, it's more work for the OB folks. Right. So I don't, I don't get that side of things. But, you know, anecdotally, um, in the very very recent past, weeks even, uh, I was seeing a patient who had terribly irregular bleeding. And we were working, trying to figure out her regular bleeding. And we looked at her thyroid and we looked at all of these things, trying to make sense of her irregular bleeding. We got a pelvic ultrasound looking for reasons that she might be having this. And only after several weeks of work and a lot of cost in terms of diagnostics, she offered to me, do you think this has anything to do with my birth control pill? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After all of that, we realized, wow, you were taking this medication with a prescription from her primary care physician. You never even thought it was relevant enough to tell me. Yes. I can't imagine that getting better when it's available without a prescription. I see that only getting worse. Oh, yeah. Well, and I mean, even think about medication interactions and mm. stuff like that. And you know that, I mean, especially not being... Uh, part of the hospital system, one of the things I see all the time is that the electronic medical records, for all the push there, they don't talk to each other in the best ways. Oh, some, sometimes not ways at all. That's right. And so, what what are they actually taking? Is it gonna is it gonna be safe with the medicines that I'm yeah. prescribing or thinking about? And I think our pro-life listeners, uh, if you stop and think about it, part of the challenge with this is. If taken incorrectly, birth control pills become less effective. Uh, the FDA already says they have a so-called failure rate of about 10%, right. um, maybe higher. Uh, we shouldn't call it a failure, something that leads to a child, but that's how they describe it. Right. Um, if taken incorrectly, a much higher failure rate. And we know from very good published data that particularly if a teenage woman becomes pregnant while taking the pill, she is much more inclined to think abortion is an acceptable option right. because the technology failed her. Right. Uh, and, and, and in many cases, that will lead. And if we look at many, many experiments have shown that uh, higher use of birth control pills increases promiscuity, number of sexual encounters, that increases the probability of a birth control pill mishap and a pregnancy and subsequently an abortion. The, the article I saw in Secular Media NBC News said some 95% of ladies admit to missing a dose a month. Um, so even, you know, if they're supposed to work, you know, the, the numbers that the CDC gives us, that's also over the month. Yeah. We know from, from the medical side of things, it's really only a matter of some days yeah. that you can actually get pregnant. So the failure rate's actually a lot higher because their denominator's bigger. It's a whole yeah. month. The forget rate is absolutely out of control. I mean, I'm reminded of that every couple of months when the pharmacy texts me and says, my blood pressure refill is ready. And I still have a lot of pills left in my <laughs> bottle, which means I forgot some along the way. Uh, that didn't result in a pregnancy, but maybe something something much more serious yeah. than that, my untreated blood pressure. It's it's definitely something that is changing dramatically, and especially with the rise of like telehealth, for example. Uh, a previous rule they had also for talking about the abortion pill in particular was that it had to be given in person. In person right. You had to meet them. You had to know who you were giving it to. This is not only for medical safety, mm. but for legal safety, because you can imagine the role of a birth control pill in like human trafficking and prostitution and stuff. So when you remove that in-person encounter and move it to a telehealth encounter mm. or a answer questions over the internet encounter, I, I got a 
a message from Amazon the other day that said, just fill out these questions, get a pink eye prescription. <laughs> and it's it's all through texting, you know, or through yeah. emails. You never actually see or speak to anybody. No communication. I mean, how is that a good idea? Even for somebody who likes the idea of abortion, that's just a bad idea, I think. Yeah, you know, you and I can't prescribe maybe narcotics for pain over the phone via telemedicine, or if we do, we could very likely find ourselves in trouble. Yet we can produce, so to speak, an abortion without ever meeting that person. It seems like a bizarre double standard. Yeah, and right in the crosshairs are the pharmacists, the folks who have to not only make decisions about are there any red flags to prescribing this with the other medicines, but also ethically, now I'm thinking about the folks who work at major pharmacy chains. If they're if they've have these things, they're going to be asked to fill them. So what kind of protections exist there? I'm thinking not a lot, but mm. hopefully our, our guest can tell us all about that. Well, I'll bet she does, and which is probably a good segue, which is time for this episode's medical trivia question, the category abortion in America. This ought to be interesting. Yeah. So there is really, there's two main types of abortion that's performed in America. There's bad and worse. Is that the... Uh, bad and worse. <laughs> that's true. Uh, I was going to say medical and surgical, mm. but but also bad and worse. Um, historically, uh, before the year 2000, pretty much all abortion was surgical. Uh, after the year 2000, when mifepristone was approved by the FDA, the number of medical abortions has been going up. And this is where you would take abortion pills rather than going to a surgery center and getting a surgery performed. So the question is simple. Currently, what is the percentage of abortions completed by pill as opposed to Well, you'll have to keep listening, listeners, if you want to hear the answer to that trivia question. We'll be right back with our guest and much, much more on Dr. Doctor. And we are back on Dr. Doctor today with Dr. Angela Ballman as our guest. She is a PharmD. She's currently in her PGY two-year pharmacy residency program in ambulatory care. She resides in her home state of Kansas. She did some training at the Kansas School of Pharmacy and then in North Carolina. And she's got a special interest in bioethics. She took the certification through the NCBC in healthcare ethics in 2001, 2021, I'm sorry. And she has a passion for studying bioethics-related issues, especially at the beginning of life. And we're excited to have you here today to shed some light on the world of a pharmacist as it relates to these issues. Angela, thanks for being on. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Angela, I think I would I would offer that there is nothing quite as painful as hearing yourself introduced. So, <laughs> so, so, so thank you for tolerating that. You know, before we get into maybe the the main part of our topic, I think listeners would benefit from uh, a bit of an of a educational education from you in terms of what what is a pharmacist education? What do you do? What happens after high school uh, to bring us up to where you are now? Absolutely. I don't think it's well known, so I think it would be worth going over it a little bit. So uh, pharmacy involves uh, becoming um, a doctor or a doctor of pharmacy. So that's the current um, requirement in order to get a PharmD license. Um, To do that, you have to complete prerequisite coursework. So you don't have to get a degree. uh, You just have to complete a certain um, type and number of credit hours uh, in order to be um, accepted into a pharmacy school. That's most pharmacy schools. So I did two years of prerequisite coursework in Kansas, and then I went on to um, go into pharmacy school, so go into the doctorate program after that. I wanted to take the short route, and so I did six years total to become a pharmacist. Nice. And Yeah, and so residency is also something that's been growing in the profession. It's not required. If you want to do anything other than retail or maybe some other niche specialties, you kind of need to do residency, and that's where I was uh, aimed at, is doing more of a clinical role and getting into some extra um, enhanced, if you will, services that pharmacists can offer. And just like Andrew and I and medicine, residency is sort of post-regular school training, correct? Yes, I do think it's fairly different than medical residency, um, but basically we undergo a lot of rotations similar to when we were pharmacy uh, students. Our mm. fourth year is, is experiential learning, but we have um, a lot more responsibility. We have our license, so we have our license on the line with different things that we're approving or not approving as far as medications go. And we still are involved in uh, research, mm. leadership, uh, teaching sure. roles, which I think um, 
really just makes everything very, it seems packed at times, right. but um, it's a lot of great training. Now, in medicine, we just love our vocabulary and our titles, um, but you mentioned PharmD, and so um, maybe you could explain the difference, if there is, between someone who is a pharmacist or someone who is a PharmD. Yeah, they're essentially the same. What happened is uh, the profession of pharmacy evolved from one of a more of a dispensary role and simply checking for errors to a profession um, and moved towards uh, a doctorate um, where we assume responsibilities towards society and, and assume kind of a code of ethics that's a little bit more robust, similar to other professions. So um, it used to be registered pharmacist or RPH, and you might still see that in some pharmacist uh, um, sure. titles and then it moved towards doctorate. So I say PharmD just because that's what um, is the most current um, designation, but pharmacists could be either or. Ah, uh, thank you. Yeah. Well, let's get let's get right to the sort of the heart of the topic and talk about chemical abortions and, you know, really what is it and how have the regulations changed and, and are changing uh, in the current times about chemical or medical abortion? Sure. So chemical abortion, and yes, you'll hear it termed um, elective abortion, um, medication-assisted abortion. I've heard it so many different ways over the past year, but it really involves right now two drug regimens. And so that involves first the administration of mifepristone, which is brand name Mifeprex, um, which uh, involves um, pretty much death to the fetus, and then misoprostol, excuse me, um, taken, I believe, 24 to 48 hours after Mifeprex, um, which expels um, the fetus or the unborn child. And it's just grown, I think, over the years steadily in use. And right now it makes up the majority of abortions. Um, about, I think, around five to six million women have used it over the past 20 years since it was approved in, um, in 2000. So uh, it's definitely the go-to method at this moment um, in time because of all the changes after Roe v. Wade was, Roe v. Wade was reversed and kind of put states... Um, in the place of having their own restrictions, but um, it's currently up for debate as far as FDA approval goes, and we can get into that later um, if you guys want. Yeah, t tell us a little bit about that because I guess w we see so much in the news about the the medicines for abortion. Tell us about you know was there unique factors about the original FDA approval and how those have changed now since Roe v. Wade. Sure. So it was first uh, approved in, um, I believe, 2000, either 2000 or 2001. And so is that dual regimen. It's not one or the other. You have to have both. Currently, I think with all of the challenges to that dual regimen, they're looking at a misoprostol only regimen. Mm -hmm. But for now, that's the only FDA approved regimen. What I mentioned, taking Mifeprex first and Mistoprostol, which is brand name Cytotec, second. Um, so it started with a lot of restrictions surrounding it. Um, you could only use it up to seven weeks gestation or 49 days. And then um, you also had to uh, be a part of the REMS program. So REMS programs are risk evaluation and mitigation strategies, essentially high-risk medications that um, can pose certain risks, um, um, not only with in the area of reproductive medicine, but other drugs. Um, they're required to undergo certain elements that ensure safe use, mainly that the benefits outweigh the risks. Um, so it had the seven-week limit, the REMS program involved, and you had to have it uh, administered, I believe, at a uh, in person at a at a clinic, um, so the provider can um, can uh, monitor for certain things. They can um, rule out certain things like ectopic pregnancy or or check RH status. Um, so that's kind of the initial approval. It had those restrictions surrounding it. You know, just just for clarity for listeners, it's, it seems worth pointing out what you're talking about is the F the FDA approved something, but it's such a a big deal for lack of a better terms. You have to participate in a special monitoring program for complications and side effects. I mean, it's just another way of saying the FDA thought this is not your average medication regimen for your average indication. Um, is that don't, don't you think that's fair to say? Yeah, I, I, I think I would uh, agree with that. Right now, there's, you know, 20,000 plus drugs approved and only 61 of them have a REMS program tied to them. Oh, so wow. yes, it's a very minor, minor area. Now, I mean, pharmacists are, are well aware of, you know, why REMS are in place. And I think we, we value that. So when it's needed to be used, I think we certainly are, are glad that it is. But 
it doesn't apply to any and all drugs. Some may argue their that number should be higher or lower. You know, there's disagreement. And you know, we've we've gone from never really hearing about the safety of these two drugs combined. I mean, at least last year or year before last, we were talking about the drugs, we were never talking about their safety. To suddenly now, people are looking back to 2000 and the FDA's approval of them and starting to ask more safety questions, I think. Um, it's interesting how that, how that came to play. Do you have some sense as to why that might be? Yeah, I think I do. I had to kind of do some research because, you know, I only became a pharmacist in 2021 and all this was happening when I was very young. So um, from my understanding, based on my research, is that after its approval, um, various pro-life groups kind of, uh, you know, tried to appeal this decision um, by filing a, what's known as a citizen's, peti citizen's petition excuse mm -hmm. me, in 2002 to the FDA, um, the reasons why it shouldn't be approved or why there should be more restrictions, I'm not quite sure which, but um, the FDA responded to that in 2016. Um, and some might argue that length of time uh, between the filing and the response is kind of a non-response. Um, but essentially uh, it didn't really sway much. There's another citizen's petition that was filed in 2019. So I think people have been concerned about the restrictions maybe even not the restrictions themselves, but that they're not really applied or that they are um, just, uh, there's just other concerns that haven't been added to them. So I think that, um, again, I wasn't around or, or in the in the pharmacy world when that was going on, but there's always to me been disagreements about the safety. It just may not have been as, um, may not have, may not has, have been as um, seriously taken by the FDA or other um, organizations involved in these kind of discussions. So after Roe v. Wade went down last year, a lot of people were upset. State to state, very different. Federal government, not super happy about that, the executive branch at least. And they've attempted to make changes to those restrictions. What's the current situation with those restrictions now? Yeah. It actually was a little bit before Roe v. Wade was overturned because the COVID-19 pandemic brought a ton of changes to the healthcare landscape. Sure. And so um, in 2021, there was a letter sent um, to the Biden and Harris administration pushing for um, expansion or expansion of medication abortion use or really just removal of restrictions, specifically the ability for them to be mail order or you know not require that in-person dispensing. Um, and that was granted by um, by the, that administration. However, there was always kind of a discrepancy because with REMS programs, the FDA oversees them, but the drug companies and manufacturers actually outline what has to happen and um, update their REMS program. Um, so that approval was there from the government, but not the change to the REMS program. So I think we were in this limbo of like, well, we, we think they're probably being given mail order, but there's technically not all the I's crossed, you know, or I's dotted and T's crossed. So that was always to me kind of uncertain. But um, regardless, that um, opened up, I think, um, after Roe v. Wade was overturned, that um, approval by the government and then Roe v. Wade was overturned. Now we had this expansion um, to remove the REMS program restrictions or really uh, change a lot of them. So and, what and that's happened... That would be before we start talking about the availability without prescription at all, correct? Just a loosening of the restrictions, but still requiring a prescription. Still requiring a prescription, yes. This is still a, a FDA-approved prescription medication. There's no talk of over-the-counter use, although people have, um, after Roe v. Wade was overturned, have started to um, advertise or support for um, concoctions that were medication-like, that were either natural or, or medication-based. So no, this is um, the approved indication and the approved regimen. Um, so after Roe v. Wade was overturned, I think it was December or January, um, either December 2022, January 2023, um, where the change was made to the REMS programs to allow for um, allow for um, retail pharmacies to begin dispensing them. So that would remove the in-person visit sure. um, with all of its you know monitoring, like I mentioned, and um, ruling out other conditions, and would now allow for greater access. And so pharmacies were required to um, get signed up if they wanted to participate through the um, medication uh, manufacturer. I think Danco is one of them, um, right? They have to facilitate these REMS changes. And so they did and put it in place, um, which would allow, like you mentioned, brick and mortar pharmacies to, yeah. um, to dispense them. 
That seems like a big deal to me. <laughs> is it is that a big deal, especially in the world of pharmacy? I mean, did I don't know if many pharmacists signed up to be handing out abortion pills. So I can only speak from my area where I am not in the retail environment anymore. I did work in retail for four years, but then I moved one year to hospital and then entering residency training. My my area is mainly outpatient clinics and outpatient clinics could still sign up. It didn't have to be, um, you know, in a, an abortion clinic or abortion specific sure. providing services. So yes, I think it's a big deal <laughs> because I mean, adding a REMS program to a medication or, or making it to where a pharmacy manages um, um, bigger portion of that uh, of that REMS program to me is not um, unheard of. Like we've had different REMS programs go under, undergo changes and we have to adhere to them. But I do agree the moral and the ethical and the healthcare concerns um, for patients of pharmacists in the community setting. It was a big change because you're right. They probably didn't envision encountering that direct or that frequent of encounters with a medication-assisted abortion. Um, yeah, if I'm, yeah, if I'm a pharmacy student and I'm Catholic or, or any number of denominations or other faiths that don't like abortion, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people, um, I'm kind of a little scared now. What kind of protections does a pharmacist have to say I'm not doing that? It's my least favorite question. <laughs> I gotta be honest, like, it's just not, it's not pretty. Uh, So protections, I think, for healthcare professionals in general, Mm. um, when it comes to conscience and religious protections are are difficult to, um, to fight for. You don't have a lot of backing. I think I, I always forget the office, but the office that manages complaints and are responsible for upholding the conscience protections laws um, don't really do so, from my understanding. So that I wouldn't go to that as a pharmacist in that kind of a position. I wouldn't go to some federal agency or something like that. I would instead look to my first, my institution or my employer's conscience protections and what I signed up for um, my contract, basically and try to go through some form of an accommodation and say, hey, I have this objection, I don't want to participate in it. And then from there, this has to do with another federal law where they have to make reasonable accommodations as long as it doesn't cause undue burden to the employer. And as a pharmacist though, I'm asking, I'm not telling, but is there a difference between I guess maybe fulfilling a prescription, you might say, Mm. that some other provider has said, take this medication and the pharmacist could say well i personally wouldn't take that but if you're taking it that's you know your issue as opposed to the pharmacist actually stepping into the provider role and saying here take this medication for that problem that that you're you know you're describing to me that that that's a that's a bigger deal from an ethical uh, a liability all kinds of perspectives do you feel that way as a pharmacist Yes, and that's one of the things that I really tried to study in that NCBC course and had a lot of great conversations. So it has to deal with cooperation, which unfortunately is the most complicated area of bioethics. Some would cooperation argue. with evil, for the record. That's yes, what we're yes, cooperation <laughs> with e- evil. In this case, evil being harm to a patient. Um, yeah. yeah. So uh, there's a chain of causation of actions, right? If someone's going towards a uh, an evil or an immoral action, there's a chain of events. There's people involved, and so the question is, um, how involved are you? Um, what's the you know, gravity of evil, um, what are other options or, or, th- or things like that. So when it comes to pharmacists, at least now in the healthcare field and how we're trained, we're no longer the dispensers only. Mm-hmm. We are healthcare practitioners involved in making independent decisions about a patient medication therapy. Like we are responsible for the outcomes of that medication. So if there was something wrong or unethical or um, there's a better option or a cheaper option, whatever it is about the medication, that's what we're responsible for. So my conclusion, I don't think this is well agreed on in Catholic medics, medical ethics or even just pharmacy profession. Like my understanding is that um, it would be the same sort of cooperation as someone who would um, prescribe that mm-hmm. if you were to sign off on it and say, yep, I agree with this, um, dispense it and counsel on it. I think those actions are just as um, just as grave and just as um, immoral. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can go into the depths of cooperation. Yeah. But well, yeah, I, I Andrew, that, that's probably a great time to take a break. And yeah. we'll, we'll get back and start unwrapping some of these more complicated questions. So stick with us. We'll be right back after the break on Dr. Doctor. 
Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and welcome back, Angela Ballman, uh, pharmacy expert, among other things. Um, Angela, we, we were just saying before the break, you know, I'm picturing this scenario where um, a pharmacist like yourself, maybe in the retail world, maybe in the hospital world, um, is presented with a request, uh, a demand by a consumer, so to speak, a patient, who wants this medication, this combination of medications, uh, to induce an abortion. Um, and uh, you being a great Catholic um, um, provider, you've got a problem with that. Um, what happens? What do you do? Where do you go? Where do you turn? What are those real sort of in-the-world issues that pharmacists are either facing or they're about to face? I think that the conversation about what you will and will not do according to your values and beliefs ideally starts before the patient who asks for that service or that product that you know is mm-hmm. not in their best interest starts way before that happens. Like it happens when you're in the in the hiring process or when you're interviewing so that you know if that situation is encountered that you will have your beliefs respected um, and won't threaten your your employment. So that's why a careful look at the, at the um, what you'll be doing in that pharmacy, what kind of patients they see, what kind of practices they do, and then that accommodation policy, mm-hmm. which I mentioned that all all um, institutions should have and if they don't then you have a discussion and put something in writing but if it were to come up you know if you weren't expecting it i think um, first and foremost you have to um, inform the patient that you know this is something that you uh, care very deeply about you need to have some consideration if you need to step aside or something just to breathe a little bit and understand what to do next i think that's probably the best these can be very emotional situations um, there's a there's a little bit of an ethical difference between transferring care and referring care. Mm-hmm. So if you said, hey, you know, I don't I don't want to dispense this abortion pill, um, you know, Joe, my co pharmacist, would you do it? Um, that's referring, and that's essentially promoting that product only via someone else. And yeah. it's essentially um, what you know you might as well hand it to them yourself. <laughs> there's not much of an ethical difference. Um, and I think transfer of care, saying, hey, I don't want to fill this prescription would you make a judgment and decide what you want to do um, to that pharmacist? And um, honestly, I think it might depend on the pharmacist. If we're talking about medication abortion, which most people feel strongly about, so we may not have as much um, pharmacists agree with that. I don't really know. I haven't been in that situation, but um, the transfer of care is really important. Um, but if it's not available, if you're the only pharmacist in the in the pharmacy, um, there's, there's things we think about like coercion and pressure uh, due to situations um, that mitigate the amount of culpability a pharmacist has. So from, from an ethical wanna, standpoint, right. Yeah, I don't wanna say that a pharmacist who does that and later confesses it, regrets it, all that <laughs> stuff, um, will be will be you know have this enormous punishment because there's pressures and stuff that i've undergone and things like that where i know that wasn't the right decision but in the moment and the pressure and the amount of knowledge i had at the time i just didn't know so lots of things that um, are involved but uh, ideally even if a pharmacist felt compelled to do something that they thought was wrong they would try to pull the patient in a direction they thought was best for them and say um you know i know this is emotional for you can we talk I have some other resources I want you to know about. I want you to know about the risks. I know you, I want you to know about the alternatives. You know, do good informed consent, um, because a lot of times I don't believe patients who undergo medication-assisted abortion get that. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like the pharmacist world is a little bit of a unsung. You know, the pharmacists are the unsung heroes in a lot of ways, because yeah, there's a lot of these decisions that go on. And the rest of the medical community kind of keeps moving and just kind of takes it for granted. Uh, but we shouldn't. We really shouldn't. Yeah. I'm I'm thinking again that that pharmacy student. Um, are there safe places to practice pharmacy? Um, have you heard about? You know, are are most pharmacies nationwide going to do this? All the big chains, or are people shunning it? What's your instinct there? So once the Rams requirements were changed and pharmacies could now be allowed to participate in the distribution. Um, Walgreens, Rite Aid, CVS, which are all, I would say, major chains, um, said that they would agree to do it, that they were going to participate. So um, that, to me, blocks out a lot of areas. However, um, as the kind of debate went on over this REMS change, we had a lot of challenges um, to it from pro-life groups and then also attorney generals at more conservative states who said, we absolutely will not allow this. Um, Walgreens write it, and I think all, I think CBS as well, they kind of pulled back and says, we, we won't do it in these states that we're having pushback from. We'll only do it in states that are comfortable with it. Um, but that sparked controversy from other state generals. 
Um, so uh, I would say that it's it's just an unknown landscape. I, I've had that question from patients um, or uh, not patients of mine, but patients in other pharmacies who say, where can I go? Hmm. That's not agreeing with this. And, and, and I don't know. It's probably independent pharmacies that have more of a Christian mission or Christian-based uh, uh, staff. Which independent yeah. pharmacies in and of themselves are becoming a rarity, are they not? But, but, you know, Andrew and I have encountered this before, and we've probably, I know I've never really put myself in the pharmacy position, but this idea that, okay, I, I want this thing, and it's legal, and I want you to give it to me, and you say, I have an ethical challenge with that, and then I might say, well, I don't really care about your ethics, I only care about my ethics, and I want the medication, so I want you to give it to me, because your ethics don't they're not relevant i don't believe in in your god and your set of rules um how do you respond to that it it brings up a discussion about um what is the relationship between the clinician and the patient Hmm. so pharmacists are clinicians we've strayed away from using the term provider because provider kind of reduces us to one who just gives and it's not a healing relationship it's not a therapeutic relationship it's not one of trust and of mutual um, agreement shared decision making goes out the window and you're just providing things so principles of medicine get reduced when we're just reduced to a, a provider level so responding to a patient like that i do think pharmacists who have religious informed consciences consciences and religious informed views have to understand how to explain it in a non-religious manner Mm. because it's true you don't want to impose religion it's okay to disclose that i can disclose i'm catholic but i want to explain why i don't think this good for this is good for you um from a healthcare standpoint from a well-being standpoint um so that's what i try to do i know that that's not always something that um may be the right decision for the given person or a situation but um we have to get back to the fact that um i have a responsibility for your well-being so I cannot in good conscience give you something that I think will harm you. That's the nature of what I am. Hmm. And so if you're looking for someone to just sell you something or someone to ignore that, um, it's it's not going to be me because that's my standard as a provider. Now I'm willing to still care for you and explore other options. Yeah. Um, but it's true that they may need to find a different um, clinician um, that might be more aligned with their views, and they should always have the freedom to seek out another pharmacist. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you've encountered this too, Andrew, but I mean, I often say, look, I know I'm, I have my biases. <clears throat> the best I could hope for is to just recognize them, but I'm also not going to ignore them. So I'll, I'll tell you what my biases are, and then you can decide. But, you know, to your point, Angela, you can decide to, to seek care elsewhere. It doesn't have to come from me. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and you're hitting on a, a really unique point too with the role of the pharmacist growing kind of over the decades into a a clinician. I like the way you you differentiate clinician from provider and maybe to just pivot a little bit into the idea of birth control, which is something, you know, our Catholic listeners will recognize that's something we don't like as Catholics. ACOG, uh, American College of OB-GYN, says that they support over-the-counter birth control with no age restrictions. And as a stepping stone, many states like our state of Indiana here this year passed a a law that allows the pharmacist to step into the prescriber role and prescribe the contraception. Um, There's a lot of of points there. What do you think about that? Yes, contraception is a different discussion than abortion, but I like how I think it was John Paul II said they're fruits of the same tree. You know, life is not wanted. Either you prevent it or you rid it um, once it is, it's there. So um, it's a related discussion. And some contraceptives function as abortifacients as part of their mechanism. So um, it's important. And I think that with pharmacists prescribing, that to me is not by prescribing, I mean under a certain kind of uh, collaboration with a physician, you know, we're not recognized as prescribers by um, CMS. So there's just a lot of legal things there. But sure. if we are initiating and recommending and discussing options and following through with that, I don't see that as outside of pharmacist scope of practice. So I don't think that action in and of itself is wrong. But if it's a contraceptive, um, it, it usually is lumped into the discussion of population health and pharmacists can, we play a huge role in population health. So that's why it's now to the foot of pharmacists. Um, so I think that there's a lot of concerns. I've looked at different um, laws in other states where they've expanded pharmacists' ability to prescribe contraception and they have guides or they have classes that pharmacists go and learn extra um, extra things. Um, I still think it just kind of makes it too 
too, I don't know, callous is the right word, or too light of a discussion. Um, go to the pharmacy and get some contraception. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking <laughs> of the, the retail pharmacists that I run into if we need to get an antibiotic or something. There's a line of people. I'm no standing time. in the line. Yeah. Like, when's the follow-up appointment? How come they, they didn't make this a rule for pink eye, but they've made a rule for, for birth control? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, it seems like this is ideologically driven more than science. Yeah, we've decided where we want to end up. Let's get there, yeah. as opposed to reasoning our way there. But I think Angela points makes a, a really good point. There would be um, traditional prescription that's not done by a pharmacist, that's done by someone like you or I. Then there would be pharmacist-led or initiated mm-hmm. prescription. And then there would be truly over-the-counter, Tylenol, Motrin. Yeah. Um, and I think many people are arguing for oral contraceptives to be uh, over-the-counter completely. No healthcare clinician, uh, as you point out, Angela, involvement whatsoever, just a transactional relationship. Yeah, and, and over-the-counter, I mean, they don't even have to talk to a pharmacist right. and oftentimes, um, there's just, yeah. So over-the-counter use, um, that's a whole part of FDA, and that's what the discussion is ongoing for one specific um, oral contraceptive pill called Opil, which is a progesterone-only, like, mini pill. And so progesterone has less long-term and short-term consequences than estrogen-based contraceptives, so that's part of their rationale for using it over-the-counter. But mini pills are inherently uh, low efficacy. They have to be taken very <laughs> diligently. And so I think a lot of people are going to believe that they're covered, so to speak, with this mm. contraceptive and just find a lot of unintended pregnancies. And it's very abortifacient given its nature. It mainly works on preventing implantation. So I have multiple concerns and just kind of feeling out what I feel like, you know, patients of mine, especially younger patients would do. I think they wouldn't mm. take them correctly. I think that they might take more for other reasons. I just have a lot of concerns about progesterone, the hormone being over the counter, even if it's in this mini pill package. Well, Angela, and the time that we have left, you know, what's what's your message to uh, to listeners as consumers of medications, um, and as those who might uh, want to follow in your professional footsteps in pharmacy? So, consumers, I think you should never be afraid to ask your pharmacist. Uh, what he or she thinks. Mm. I think oftentimes in the busy day-to-day, a lot of pharmacists don't get time to have face-to-face conversations that are meaningful with patients. So um, I think that this is important to talk about and they probably have a lot of good experience that you could um, glean from them. And just recognize that they are providers just like your, sorry, clinicians, just like your your doctor or just like your nurse practitioner. Um, And they have a lot of training and they have a lot of expertise. So I don't think we have a place right now where you can go if you want to just seek pro-life pharmacy care or just seek um, certain types of for services. I think we're, we're yet to see that. Um, and then I, what I would say to people trying to go into pharmacy or thinking about it, um, you know, I can't say that I have a lot of places where they can go. Like you mentioned, safe places to practice or residencies. There's no Catholic residency. Um, but I feel very called to this role. I love pharmacy. I think medications are awesome. I know, I know not everyone thinks meds are awesome. They want to get off as many meds as possible. But I'm like, ooh, a medication. So I have to pull back from that when I'm with patients. <laughs> but uh, I feel very called to this role. I feel that God wanted to wake me up to all these realities and say, I need you to help me with this. Um, and we need to get pharmacy back on track. So if that's you, don't say no to it. I've tried to say no to it. God always gets his way. <laughs> um, so just don't ignore it. Don't ignore the, um, the the problems you're gonna encounter. And if they're tough, you have to give yourself grace when you don't always meet what you feel like was the expectation of you. But um, yeah, don't ignore the call from God. I think that's probably a good thing to, to do for any profession. Well, I think we're all glad that you didn't ignore it. Um, And you've got a promise to come back um, maybe a few months from now and update our listeners on where things stand because this feels like it's changing by the moment. Mm -hmm. Actually, by the time listeners hear this, uh, there may be much clearer situations where it's sometimes a little gray, a little cloudy right now. But but thank you for your work and thank you for your yes. And we'll thank you in advance for coming back to Dr. (laughs) Doug. Thank you. Sounds good. Thank you, guys. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and welcome to the answer to this episode's medical trivia question on, guess what, abortion in America. Yes. So there's two main types of abortion, historically surgical abortion, and then now, since 22,000, when it was approved, uh, medical abortion. 
question is what percentage uh, are medical abortions? The answer in 2020, the most recent data I could find, was 53%, more than half. And that was before the <laughs> pandemic and before telemedicine, really, um, and before the fall of Roe, where I don't know what it is now, but it's going to be way higher than 53%. It was zero in the year 2000. Mm. So this has been shooting up like a skyrocket. But Chris, why is this a big deal? Why well, is this different? Gosh, there's so many, so many things there. But if you look at graphs from the CDC or others, and it will say um, procedural abortions, or sometimes they're called surgical abortions, which is really a DNC mm -hmm. determinated pregnancy, you'll see the graph climbing, and then at about 2000, it suddenly falls. And then you'll hear on the news and other places that the number of abortions is falling. Mm. And the, the tricky part about that data is medical abortions are notoriously underreported yeah. because the regulations vary from state to state to state in terms of reporting. And so a surgical abortion had to be performed in a facility, generally in an outpatient surgery center, uh, a Planned Parenthood clinic, and those were reported as surgical procedures. So we had pretty good data but now the data doesn't always accurately reflect the actual number of abortions because, as you point out in the answer to the question, about one in two abortions happened via taking the pills in the privacy, so to speak, of someone's own home. So we really are lacking good data. And that lacking, I think, is going to get worse because of all the things that we've just been talking about on this episode. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a changing time. Um, it's really incredible, too, because you were sharing a story. We were all getting fired up at, over the break um, <laughs> just about the trauma of a medical yeah. abortion that people don't think about. It's not just take two pills and call me in the morning. Right. It's a lot bigger deal. I'm generally not a fan of how women's health is portrayed in Hollywood. But <laughs> in the movie Unplanned, um, the star has a medical abortion in her bathroom. And I would say, having talked to many, many women through the years that have been through this, that is very accurately portrayed. Uh, and it, it looks like a murder scene. Well, that's a, an appropriate yeah. choice of words. I didn't set out that way, but yeah. but it is. It's it's very bloody. It's very painful. And uh, she, you know, she finds herself just alone, bleeding, and intense pain. And I, I don't think the system does a very good job at all of making young women understand that's what they're saying yes to until, in many cases, it's already too late. But the complications, the complexities of medical abortion uh, are woefully under-discussed in some of these arrangements. And as you point out, they're not going to be discussed at all. Uh, yeah. In some cases, it's a text or a computer-based interaction with a, a so-called provider. Yeah, uh, and no. even telehealth, I mean, who's standing outside the screen, right? Mm. I mean, I, I think a lot with the medical abortions about uh, criminal activity, uh, you know, human trafficking, or even like, you know, pediatric type adolescent stuff. I mean, who's getting the pills? Are they the one who's actually taking mm. them? There's not follow-up required for a lot of these things. And so it, this is obviously a, a bad idea ethically, but I think maybe some of our secular friends would appreciate how bad of an idea this is just socially from a medical perspective. Uh, this is a, just terrible. And it's never presented in that light. I mean, you and I have worked with some amazing people that, that are very involved in human trafficking of young women. And this is wonderful for the trackers, uh, traffickers, yeah. I should say. So if, if the young women that they're holding hostage become pregnant, they merely get the two medications for them, give them, the young woman undergoes the, the abortion um, behind the scenes, in the dark, in the shadows, uh, and then is trafficked to the world shortly thereafter. So it's a great arrangement uh, for the human traffickers. And I just don't think maybe our secular friends are, are thinking through what that means. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's one of the few times when they interact with the healthcare system. Yeah. And we've just totally abdicated that to a telehealth mm. appointment, you know, if you want to call it that. So very disappointing. But it's... Uh, I guess we better hit our top three takeaways. I don't know. What do you think? Well, it's hard to pick three <laughs> from, from this topic. 
Yeah, I really enjoyed Angela's discussion, but it, it's it's hard to uh, hard to come away with with just only three. I really liked the thing that she said at the beginning was, "Don't be afraid to kind of get to know your pharmacist yeah. or to ask questions." I will admit, every time I pick up a prescription, they say, "Do you have any questions for the pharmacist?" and I reflexively say, "No," um, but we shouldn't be afraid to say, "Actually, yes, I'm taking this other medication," or maybe I'm taking this supplement, yeah. and I forgot to ask if the supplement interacts. With with this medication. And I've got to tell you, I have some patients, you know, it's not the majority, but there's some in particular where they know their pharmacist. Mm. Bill is my pharmacist. <laughs> I'm going to run this by him, make sure it's okay. Those people are way more engaged about their health, especially nobody wants to take medicine. If you're on medicine, make sure you know the person who's giving it to you. Get their input. I do think pharmacists are kind of the unsung heroes in mm. the in the system because I don't get to talk to them that much, but they save my neck a lot. I mm. know it. Yeah, I will admit, as I know you would too, I've had many calls from pharmacists who said, did you really mean to prescribe <laughs> yeah. this medication? or this dose to this person, and they've prevented me from making big mistakes. Yes, 100%. So I'm grateful for them. How about you, number two? Number two, I would say, especially in regard to all the legal stuff, things are changing rapidly. Uh, People who uh, follow the news cycle will notice split federal court decisions in regard to um, taking away some of these rules about the abortion pills in particular. Judge in Texas tried to put an injunction on it. Uh, Another judge... Um, I forget which state said to let it go through. The Supreme Court has not acted yet. They're they're letting it play out a little bit, but we we should expect some legal clarity in the coming months. But it's a changing environment. Mm. Yeah, thanks for stay tuned. Uh, you know, listeners might want to check out NCB Center. Org. That's the, the bioethics center that Angela mentioned. They've got a 24-hour hotline where you can actually call and, and get up-to-date, up-to-the-moment information. Yeah, if you're, if you're a pharmacist or really anybody who's in one of these situations and you don't know how to act, they're a reliable resource we'd right. recommend to get their input. Absolutely. And then, and lastly, I love that she said, don't ignore the call. Now, she was talking to pharmacists, but I think when she said that, you and I were thinking nurses, dentists, podiatrists, yeah. uh, it doesn't matter. If you're, if you're called to, uh, to get involved in this industry that's called healthcare, um, yes, it's a little ugly and we're going through some tough times, but that's the perfect time for great people to get involved. So please don't ignore that call. And, and although we talk about all these negative things, I mean, it is really, it's special, I think Angela would admit too, to just be used in that role mm-hmm. when you can affect change in the lives of your patients and hopefully lead them, lead them to God. Well, don't ignore that call and don't ignore episodes of Dr. Doctor. And we're really glad that you decided uh, to listen to this one. You can find all of our old episodes episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Just click on episode archive and we've got well over 300 episodes that you can search through at your leisure. And now we even offer a video version of our podcast. You can click on the YouTube link near the top of the homepage at drdoctor.org. And we also have a place where you can click submit a question. <laughs> we love ideas for new show topics, especially things you'd like to hear about. Well, listeners, I'm Dr. Chris Strick. And I'm Dr. Andrew Mullally, and we're signing off for your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Have you dreamt of visiting the places where Jesus walked or where the saints made their marks on the world? Trust your trip to the pilgrimage company that more priests, Catholic authors, speakers, and theologians trust. Select International Tours. For 36 years, Select International Tours has provided the very best in pilgrimage travel, including centrally located hotels, the best local Christian guides, and unparalleled access to sacred sites and cultural experiences. SelectInternationalTours.com is the first step on your next pilgrimage.